Hi, and welcome back to the History of Software podcast. This is our third episode, and today we're talking about hacker culture, the early days. So we're going to look at the period from 1958 to 1970 and examine the evolution and early days of hacker culture. This is our third episode, and my name is Podger Coffey, the CEO of Zartis, a software company, and I'm a historian in terms of academic background. And this week we're joined once again by Antonio Reher, a technical team lead at Zartis. How are you today, Antonio? Good, Podrick. How are you? I'm doing pretty well and uh, excited about this topic. Uh, I've been doing quite a lot of reading around this over the past couple of weeks. As mentioned, we're going to explore the birth of hacker culture in MIT in the late 1950s and look at the progress of the movement up until 1970. We're going to start with the question, what is hacker culture? And to paraphrase Vera Goering in her book, The Internet and Public Life, hacker culture is a subculture of individuals who enjoy the intellectual challenge of creatively overcoming limitations of software systems to achieve novel and clever outcomes. And the act of engaging in activities such as programming or other media in a spirit of playfulness and exploration is termed hacking. So, Antonio, what do you think about this? Sounds to me like a very academic uh, definition. Um, I think uh, the second part is uh, probably more on the money. It probably is. And I guess the, the interesting thing with the whole concept of hackers and hacking is that for some, it, it kind of provokes an image of, um, you know, folks up to no good and, you know, breaking into your bank account and stealing all your money or getting into your Gmail and exposing your, your deepest, darkest secrets. But really, hacker culture uh, isn't about any of that, actually. Um, and for a real more in-depth definition, we can look at the work of Steve Levy, who's written extensively on this topic, six principles of hacker culture. So he talks about access to computers being unlimited and total, that all information should be free, that we should mistrust authority. Um, Levy is also a good source of information regarding the incipient stages of the hacker movement. So as we mentioned last week, Levy takes the view that hacker culture was born when members of the Tech Model Railroad Club at MIT took an interest in programming. And uh, the Tech Model Railroad Club is, is something, as I, as I said, we did mention it last week. It is super important in the evolution of software and in the history of software. And it also calls my attention to the whole idea of there being a hierarchy of nerddom. So within the Tech Model Railroad Club, you had the guys who were into signals and power. And many of them, they didn't have the right credentials to access computer labs. So they started physically breaking into computer labs so that they could write software in Lisp. These were the types of folks that would go dumpster diving for hardware parts outside of the buildings of defense contractors in the Boston area and utilize parts for the signals and power aspect of model trains. So you're, you're talking about folks who are, you know, so obsessed with making uh, model trains 
work really well, that they're hacking together uh, computers essentially below the table on which the, the model railroad um, stands. So um, by chance, a TX0 computer had been donated by the Defense Department to MIT, and this was situated right next to the space allocated to the TMRC. And Antonio, I think you came across uh, some information about the TX0. Yeah, interesting. The TX0, or TXO, as it was uh, commonly called, uh, was a computer that was built entirely out of transistors. Uh, so this is way before the time of integrated circuits or, or chips. Uh, this had uh, a whole 64K of core memory, which is actually macroscopic. You can actually see the bits uh, with your eyes. So these are this was a big machine. Uh, it was built in 1956 and was used continuously uh, throughout the 60s at MIT. And in fact, it still ran in 1983. So that's 27 years. Uh, you know, my Mac won't last that long, that's for sure. Out of interest, like, so 64K of core memory, how much core memory do you have in, like, a, a standard MacBook these days? Like, RAM memory, uh, which is not core, is integrated circuits or, or chips, uh, you would have uh, between 4 and 8 gigabytes. A uh, gigabyte is 10 zeros away from a, a megabyte, which is 10 zeros away from a kilobyte. So, you're talking about... Uh, around 20 million times more memory. That's a lot of progress in the, in the last over 60 years. So a slightly different view on all of this comes from an engineer and writer called Eric Raymond, who posits the suggestion that hacker culture emerged in MIT in 1961 when the Tech Model Railway Club began working with a PDP-1 computer. And this particular computer has a rich history in terms of software innovation. It was the hardware on which one of the very first video games, Space War, was written, along with the first word processor and some of the very earliest examples of computerized music. Uh, interesting is that uh, the first reference to, to malicious hacking is actually in the MIT student newspaper, and they're quoted as telephone hackers because they use the PDP-1 to make free calls and also war dialing, which is automatically dialing all the numbers in an area code and uh, and just racking up uh, big telephone bills. So it's wow. interesting how adults playing with kids' toys is uh, a counterculture icon then as it is now. That is interesting. And uh, I think we alluded to this earlier, but the origins of the term hacking itself uh, again, you know, looking at the work of Steve Levy, he states that the folks at uh, the TMRC uh, referred to the activities they undertook below the tabletop of a model railroad in terms of signal and power as hacking. So they would use hardware from Bell Telephone Company, from defense contractors, you know, alluding to dumpster diving earlier, and they would hack that hardware together and essentially put together homemade computers that were powering model trains more effectively. It would be, I think, a good moment to talk about the concept of the right thing. So the early hackers at MIT are often being characterized as being stuck in furious debates and arguments about the best way to build software. And according to Bill Gosper, and more on him later, this wasn't about egos or being right. It was a sense that there always existed the right thing. 
which according to him very specifically meant the unique, correct, elegant solution. The thing that satisfied all the constraints at the same time, which everyone seemed to believe existed for most problems. So the idea you have here is this kind of state of perfect equilibrium where you just find that ideal solution to a technical problem. We should also consider the irony of who paid for it all. So you have hacker culture, which is very idealistic and maybe in some senses a little bit unrealistic, but the utopian vision was essentially, you know, paid for because of Defense Department largesse. And as we discussed last week, incredible amounts of financial resources were being made available to academic institutions, mainly driven by concerns of national security. And you have these, you know, utopian idealists uh, in uh, well-funded university settings. Uh, and it's it, it, there is a kind of an irony there that the, the money was coming from, from government, from defense departments, etc. And tensions would flare up mainly on West Coast college campuses during the 1960s and, and early 1970s, because many students and faculty were not overly comfortable with where the money was coming from. And in the end, it's hard to get away from the fact that military budgets enabled all of this. It's, it's interesting how um, also how guiding missiles and airplanes is uh, very expensive stuff. And sooner or later, this sort of uh, research gets uh, uh, reinvested in society. So in a way, it's I guess it's good that it trickles down to the common folk. Padraig, do you think that, um, that finding the middle ground is something that would apply also to personal life, to personal uh, relationships? That's a very deep philosophical question. I, I think so. Um, I think that there is, in, in most human interactions, there is that point you can get to where you are in equilibrium or, or something in balance is achieved, um, you know, in any in any relationship, in any negotiation, and I, I guess all relationships are characterized by some form of negotiation. Uh, so yeah, I do think that that the right thing uh, exists, and I I find that particularly in the work setting that there is there's very often and not a perfect solution, but there's this solution you can bring to bear on most problems um, that will be satisfactory to all parties involved. We might move on and start talking about Project Mac. So in the early 1960s, Project Mac launched at MIT, and this was an initiative focused on helping users in different locations access programs on a single computer. And this became the foundation for computer networking and online collaboration as we know it. So Mac was funded by ARPA, which we touched on last week. And from what I understand, Project Mac contained many of the same people as the Tech Model Railroad Club and made huge advances, not only in networking, but also in operating systems, artificial intelligence and the theory of computation. And among the key people at Project Mac was John McCarthy, who invented the Lisp programming language. Interesting fact here, uh, Lisp and Fortran are some of the oldest languages around. Um, Fortran uh, was developed in 1957 and Lisp in 1958. Uh, both uh, are still, uh, can, they're still being used. Uh, Lisp lives on in the form of Clojure, which is fairly common. Um, 
and it was closely tied to the AI research community, uh, whereas Fortran was more uh, for numeric computation and scientific computing. Uh, but there's still languages that uh, there's languages that are still around. Would I be right in thinking that Fortran is still used um, for calculations in chemistry? <laughs> Absolutely. How did you know? <laughs> yeah, in fact, um, the uh, most common Fortran version that's been used, at least when I was uh, doing my research, was Fortran 77, which is a, seven, a flavor that was uh, put together in 1977. Uh, but more recently, uh, it's Fortran 90 that's been taking uh, the lead, but we're talking about languages that are 30 years old here. Um, so yeah, it's still being used, absolutely. In scientific computation, uh, second, uh, I think Python might be uh, second to Fortran right now. Very good, the ubiquitous Python. Uh, we're probably gonna have to do a history of Python episode at some point because it's um, starting to strangle the world. <laughs> Pardon my pun. Hey, <laughs> programming jokes, excellent. Um, we should talk a little bit about John McCarthy. So. In doing research for this episode, you come across a name like John McCarthy. It couldn't be couldn't be more Irish if it tried. And McCarthy is a is a name that's very common in the part of Ireland that I'm from, uh, the Munster region. So John had a Jewish mother and an Irish father from County Kerry, and I can't help but being struck that this sounds like a genetic combination likely pr to produce super smart people. Um, all the experience I've had uh, dealing with people in Kerry's like, I don't know, there's something in the water down there, but you just get these whip smart people from that part of the world. So McCarthy spent uh, from 1956 to 62 at MIT, after which he set up the AI lab at Stanford, which is called SAIL. And it might not be fully accurate to describe John McCarthy uh, as an advocate for hacker culture, but in some ways he helped to disseminate aspects of it. So there's a little bit of a tension here as to whether you put John McCarthy into the category of like one of the founders of hacker culture. He certainly did help to shape it. But to give you an example of where he might be a little bit at odds with some aspects of hacker culture, he insisted at Stanford that users of the timesharing system could keep their files private. And uh, it didn't take long before hackers within sale were bypassing passwords uh, to see what their colleagues were up to. But even considering this, there's no doubt that Uncle John, as they referred to him, was a, was a key figure in the spread of hacker culture. So is he someone that you have ever come across, uh, Antonio? Uh, not until research for this podcast, really. Um, the, the, these are very interesting people, and uh, many of them are still around. Uh, I mean, we're going to get into some of them later who uh, completely diverged their careers. Uh, but John McCarthy, I wasn't, I, wasn't, um, I, I wasn't aware of. Yeah, I was also introduced to L. Peter Deutsch uh, in this research as well. So he's another really interesting figure. He got a taste for programming at the age of 11 and uh, was hanging around MIT and learning from the tech model of Railroad Club folks uh, while still in short pants to use his phrase he moved out to california for college where he worked on project genie which was one of the first mini computer based time sharing systems and he wrote most of the operating systems kernel 
And uh, to the point you've just made, Antonio, about 20 years ago, he essentially abandoned software engineering to pursue his ambitions in music composition. And apparently he got very good. So uh, his music is on Spotify. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but El Peter Deutsch. Uh, so we got to check out whether his, uh, his compositions are, are as good as his programming capabilities. We can do a special on his music. <laughs> El, El, actually, um, he was born Lawrence Peter Deutsch, or Deutsch, or how are you going to pronounce that in English? Uh, but he changed his name to L. L is his actual name, and uh, it's uh, it's cool how this all started at MIT in Boston, and uh, little by little, it's being disseminated towards the West Coast. People going to Berkeley, to Stanford, um, and uh, how it spreads through the country. Have you ever visited Berkeley or Stanford, like the, the campuses? Yes, I've been to Berkeley. I, I actually lived in Berkeley uh, for two or three years, and it's a beautiful campus. Uh, I've stepped on Stanford, uh, but I had to wipe the soles of my feet after that because uh, that's the, uh, the big rivalry is Stanford and Berkeley. And uh, okay. I've also been to MIT. I visited MIT, and they've got a nice campus too, and just a, full of smart people, really. It makes you feel small. <laughs> There's nothing like being surrounded by super smart people to feel inadequate. So, so Bill Gasper is someone that we mentioned earlier, um, recognized as one of the earliest members of the hacker community, and like many of the others, he attended MIT. He studied math and became a little bit disaffected with the math faculty as he felt they were anti-computer, anti-technology in some sense. And apparently they used to refer to computer science as witchcraft in the math faculty. So Gosper had the chance to attend a programming course under John McCarthy and he became affiliated with the MIT AI lab. And under Uncle John, as they referred to him, he learned Fortran before moving on to work with the PDP-1. He is often referred to as the co-founder of the hacker movement, along with Richard Greenblatt. And even if this is technically not the case, he certainly did a lot to help spread the culture. Yeah, Bill Gosper's uh, first love was rocketry, and that was uh, he played with model rockets as a kid. Uh, and one of his friends had a had a fatal accident once, so I guess uh, that's when he decided to uh, search for other hobbies. Yeah, I guess working with a PDP one is uh, potentially safer than uh, than rockets. Um, Richard Greenblatt is someone that we mentioned uh, very briefly earlier. So he found his way to MIT via a childhood spent in Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Missouri. And he's often described as a hacker's hacker and was a very prominent member of the Tech Model Railway Club. He would get so obsessed with hacking that he initially failed out or dropped out of MIT. And right from the early days, you can see people getting just massively absorbed in their work and obsessed. He took a huge interest in AI and he returned to MIT to work at the AI lab and began to make huge strides in, in Lisp programming. And as a leading proponent of AI, he created MacHack, which was the first uh, software capable of playing tournament level chess. And Antonio, uh, as you mentioned last week, MacHack has nothing to do with uh, Steve Jobs or the Apple world. Um, but 
there is a real seminal moment when Greenblatt's software program beat an academic from the RAND Corporation in a game of chess. And really that's when people started to um, take notice of AI as a viable field of technological innovation. We should also talk about ARPANET and the critical part that that played in the spread of hacker culture. So to conclude this week's episode, let's look at ARPANET, the precursor to the internet. So John McCarthy moved to the West Coast and helped to disseminate hacker culture to a certain extent. But in terms of really diffusing the ideas inherent to hacking, you needed a technology platform and ARPANET achieved this. So ARPANET was the first transcontinental high-speed computer network. It was built by the Defense Department as an experiment in digital communications, but it grew to link together hundreds of universities and defense contractors and research lab laboratories and it enabled researchers everywhere to exchange information with unprecedented speed, huge flexibility. It gave a massive boost to collaborative work and tremendously increased the pace and intensity of technological advancements. But ARPANET did something else as well. It brought together hackers from all over the US in a, in a critical mass and to quote Steve Levy, gave them the opportunity to reinvent themselves as a networked tribe. Yeah, um, hacker culture uh, needed to seep down to the general population, I guess. And uh, for that, uh, people would need access to remote machines uh, and ARPANET provided just that. So once you have modems, which allows people to access ARPANET or any other network from their home, uh, the world was ready for war games starring Matthew Broderick. What is war games? The movie. You haven't seen the movie War Games? No, is it good? Oh, of course. You have to see that movie. That's that's a 1980s. That's a classic. It's a 1980s classic. And I'm trying to imagine what Matthew Broderick looks like. Um, what would I know him from? Uh, well, he's in other movies, I guess. War Games? <laughs> <laughs> well, War Games is a must-see. I mean, uh, because it's it's he starts the movie by hacking his grades. Uh, I won't say any more, but that's the beginning of the movie. So uh, he connects, he dials up to the network, he dials up to his uh, computer in his high school, and he hacks his grades. So I guess that's uh, an exponent of um, what uh, bad hackers would turn out, you know, would end up doing. I guess. Like this. This whole episode uh, has been super interesting for me from a, from a research perspective. So, you know, every time I've been reading about the, the individuals involved, be it Greenblatt or McCarthy, and you just examining their lives and their eccentricities, it's just super interesting. And um, it's interesting to see how uh, early features of hacker culture and of, um, you know, the culture of computer science still exist today. So, um, you know, I think that in a software engineering team, for example, that whole concept of the right thing, I think in a, in a well-evolved, mature team, that's what everyone is aiming for. It's not, okay, I want my decision to be the one taken or I want it to go my route. It's about finding what's, you know, the most efficient solution given the technological and business constraints that exist. I'm going to say that, that that's something that happens spontaneously. It's not even taught in, in programming schools or 
uh, IT departments. It's it's just something um, it's something that comes spontaneously in, in in tech teams. Yeah. Also, in in reading some of the accounts of the the early days of hacker culture, there's a, a few descriptors of like guys letting kind of personal hygiene fall by the wayside because they were just getting so obsessed with their work and what they were doing. And uh, yeah, maybe that's something that uh, that exists within the tech world still today. Yeah, you're not biting on that one, Antonio. Uh, no, I'm perfectly clean. I smell good and everything. <laughs> I took a shower twice today. <laughs> good for you. So uh, this episode was produced by Nick Brennan. We have music from Robert Cooney. And our guest this week was Antonio Reher. So thank you for your time, Antonio. Thank you, guys. That was fun. Yeah. These are good fun. So, uh, yeah, we'll wish you all a good week.